Holy, holy, holy are You, Lord God Almighty. Father, I look forward to that day when all of us gathered with all creation will sing, Holy, 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 You are worthy. And Lord, we won't have to rely only on our ears, but Lord, with our whole beings, we will be able to feel, know, understand, comprehend Your holiness. Father, we thank You for that day in the future. And Lord, we thank You for our days now. Because You have given us life through Your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, it's Him that we seek to honor and to praise. May we do so with our words, our music, our actions this day. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. David Brooks wrote a book called The Road to Character. And in a recent NPR interview, he spoke about his research. And this is what he said. He said, my favorite statistic about this is that in 1950, the Gallup organization asked high school seniors, are you a very important person? 12% said yes. They asked again in 2005, and it was 80% who said they were a very important person. So he goes on to say, We live in a culture that encourages us to be big about ourselves, but I think the starting point of trying to build inner goodness is to be a little bit smaller about yourself. Now, some might argue that there is a correspondence between the rise in self-esteem and the decline in SAT scores. <laughs> in the 1950s, we ranked number one in math. Today, we're just barely holding on to 39th among the nations. And while I realize that some of those metrics are flawed and we can argue about that, Regardless, something has indeed happened because our own scores are declining within our own metrics, in our own context. Now, self-esteem, understand me, is vitally important. It's important to our growth. It's important to our spiritual development. But it is not the goal. The world magnifies the self all out of proportion and reduces God's role as something that's irrelevant, something that is not needed, even insignificant. However, for believers, what we must do is, is to build our character, a godly character. And we need to understand that the foundation for our self-esteem is, in fact, found in Christ. But character development seems to be uh, slipping through our fingers. Our, our culture has become materialistic to a point where our outlook on truth and justice has been replaced with name recognition and wealth. Francis Schaeffer bemoaned this in his 
book, How Should We Then Live, when he said that we have been reduced to the only two absolute values that remain in our culture, personal peace and affluence. In today's world, success and fame or infamy are valued over integrity. You know, it was only a few years ago that our most celebrated figures in our culture You know, they had problems, but we didn't know what those problems were because they only wanted good publicity, right? No longer. Faults today are actually seen as beneficial. No longer matters whether the publicity is positive or negative. The only thing that's important is FaceTime. It's all that matters. Meanwhile, godly character has been removed from the public sphere almost altogether. It's been condemned to the personal sphere. Just like, now now get this, because language is important. Language is very important. The First Amendment guarantees the freedom of religion. One day I'll preach an entire sermon about this. But if you listen carefully to the media, if you listen carefully to the thinkers of the day, they say that what we have is not freedom of religion, but freedom of worship. There's a profound difference between those two things. Religion occurs in the public sphere. Worship occurs in the private sphere. Don't listen to words and think they're glorious and wonderful. There is an attempt in our culture to push Christianity, to push faith out of the public sphere, into the private sphere where no one can see it anymore. It was not very long ago that an individual, a prominent individual, extolled the virtue of abstinence before or outside of marriage, and he was uh, mercilessly mocked. Good is becoming evil. Evil is becoming good. That's the society we live in. Back to the educational thing. The educational testing service ran a, a survey of of who's who uh, among American high school students. This was done recently, and they discovered that 80% of the students who were in the who's who, we probably have some who's who in here, I was not among them, but anyway, 80% cheated, admit Self-admit to cheating in order to get to the top of the list. Okay, alright. Maybe we can accept that. That happened. What I cannot accept that is over 50% of that 80% said it wasn't a problem. Just the way it is. It's not wrong. Just what you need to do. It's not a big deal. I mean, many of them actually thought that cheating was part of the competitive process. You know, when I was growing up, and I I did a couple of times look at someone else's paper, but let me tell you this, I did so to pass, (laughs) not to get ahead. (laughs) I was just trying to keep up. But cheating today is, is, is is a hunt for scholarships. It's an amazing thing. And it's no longer sanctioned the way it was in the past. Such that, I mean, I was stationed at the United States Air Force Academy 
And it was a foreboding uh, time, really, but it was also a fascinating time. And among other things, it was a period where the leaders were desperately trying to figure out the nature of the character of the incoming cadets and how they could best address the need to build character into them. I attended a conference with the Air Education Training Command, which the academy is under, and the, the general, General Lorenz, stood and said, fully 75% of men and women between the ages of 18 and 26 are not qualified to enter military service. 75% not qualified to enter military service. Now, this is either because of fitness standards, it's because of intellectual standards or from there uh, all the way down to criminality. And what that meant was that the military was wrestling with other organizations for that remaining 25% in so many ways. And the problem for the new cadets was this. It's an interesting problem. If the academy standards were applied to the incoming cadets, if the standards of conduct were applied to the incoming cadets, there would soon be no academy. Because so many would be kicked out, there wouldn't be a graduating class. So academy leadership fought through this, trying to determine what can we do. Our society at large is no longer as a matter of character fit to serve in the military, at the highest levels. And so what they decided was to have a trajectory. We have to ease off at the beginning so long as the end product is the character that we need in the people. They believed, as I believed, that character not only counts, but that character can be developed. The question that we have before us is, can our character be developed? And if so, how? Let's turn to, uh, and take a peek at Proverbs 20, verse 11. Proverbs 20, verse 11. We, we see something that uh, we taught our girls when they were quite young. I think it was in 81 or 82. Um, and I can't remember the artist, but it, they came out with an album. It was called Critter Counties. Anyone ever heard of Critter County? No hands go up. They, one hand goes up. Thank you for that. I see that hand. <laughs> and they sang songs about verses about rearing children. And one of them was that even a child is known. Even a child is known by their doing. And that's our verse today. 2011. Even a child makes himself known by his acts, by whether his conduct is pure and upright. Even a child makes himself known by his acts. What Solomon is saying here is that since we can know a child's character by their acts, how much more can others know our character as adults by our acts? Now, this is not quite as simple as it may seem, and, uh, because we have to look at this word 
child here for just a second. What does is, what is Solomon mean uh, by, uh, by child? The, the, the problem with this word is that it ranges all the way from um, infant. In fact, it's the, uh, the, the word actually means to make uh, like noises, like noise, like a baby would make. Okay, that's what the word actually means. And it goes from there all the way up to a, uh, a man of marriageable age who is not yet married. And so we come into this, we come into this crazy zone where we're saying, okay, what in the world does he mean when he says child? Because this word does has that range. But when you look at the preponderance of verses in scripture, what you end up with is marriageable young men. In fact, this is the very word in the feminine form that's used of Ruth after she's widowed when she's heading uh, over to Israel with Naomi. And this uh, this understanding, and, and maybe you've had this question in your mind before, uh, if you're going through the one-year Bible, uh, you will ultimately face it, but it's a really obscure story in the life of Elisha, found in uh, 2 Kings chapter 2, 23 and 24, where a large group taunted him. What did they say? Somebody who knows the story, what did they say to him? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And, and, and so what happened was Elisha cursed them. And two female bears came out of the trees there and, and, and tore into about 42 of them. The problem that we have here is that the, the, the King James, among others, but the King James, which is where most of our uh, deep... Uh, thought and, and tradition stems from in the English world with the Bible, says that it was little children that did this. Now, i got a problem with Elisha if he's sicking bears on little children. Okay? But here's my question to you. When was the last time you saw a band of 56-year-olds out by themselves, alone in the wilderness, tracking somebody and loudly taunting them. When was the last time you saw a band of six-year-olds uh, screaming at someone in a restaurant, for example? No, these people are, were not little children. They were late adolescents. They were early 20s. Even though Timothy... Uh, was older than our word allows here, he, he was, Solomon is still saying uh, very much the same thing uh, that Paul was saying to Timothy when he said this, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Let me just say something about this, and I understand Paul's intent. Uh, by not allowing your conduct to allow someone to despise you for your youth. But let me just say, you got no control over whether somebody despises you or not. Somebody wants to despise you, they're going to despise you. Some people will despise you just for meanness, just out of meanness. They don't like the way you comb your hair. Right? Okay, now these people have issues. Okay, I get it. But the point is this. You can control your behavior, your conduct in love and faith and purity such that they have no justification for that. 
So Solomon is saying, like Paul, youth is not an excuse. It's not. Oh, well, they're still, you know, their brain, you, you've got this, right? You've been hearing this on the news here recently. Well, their brain, the male brain is not fully formed until it's like 27 years old. As if that excuses what you do before your 27th birthday. That is nuts. Is that crazy? And yet, that's what's being presented. They're, they're, we've extended adolescence to this insane zone. There's no excuse. Even a child is known by their behavior. But where do we go? I mean, young or, or old, to learn what character should be because I believe that no matter what your age is, you can develop uh, character. Our post-biblical character uh, culture does not have the capability to point you in the right way. Our culture has lost true north. And I believe that at one point it did have true north, but it is, it's, it's, gone. Uh, it's gone now. Indeed, many uh, ways in our culture, having flipped evil for good and, and good for evil, not only is uh, that unreliable, in some cases it's, it's downright uh, bad examples. So where do we turn? Obviously, Scripture. Scripture alone is stands alone, in fact, as the reliable guide for outlining what it is that we should do in our quest for character. Second Peter uh, 1, 5 through 8, puts it this way. It gives actually a catalog of virtues. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and you are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 5 tells us, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And Matthew 7.16 reads this way, You will recognize them by their fruits. When we look at this notion of character, what Solomon is talking about, what Paul was talking about, what Peter was talking about, uh, what Matthew was talking about, we come to find that truly excellent character is an extension of the grace of God in our lives, producing the recognizable fruit of grace in our lives. I mean, because God's grace is the source... All the virtues are not merely interdependent and related. They are, in fact, connected with one another through God's grace and their reflection of God's own character. This is, this is best seen in the, in the word character found in Hebrews 1, 3. It might benefit you to turn there in Hebrews 1. Actually, uh, verses 1 through 4 is a a single sentence in the original uh, language. It's one, uh, one sentence. And there's much to be said about that, but I'm only going to look at this uh, one word, uh, character. But in verse 
1 of uh, Hebrews, I mean, uh, verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 1, it says this, He, that is Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. That word exact imprint is the word character. And, and it's, a, it's a great word because character is actually a Greek word. So it's not a translation. What it is, character, is a word that came to us. It's called a transliteration. So they took the Greek word, put Latin uh, letters to it, and we end up with our English word, character. And so it is a word that is filled with not only meaning for us, but it's filled with meaning that the, the, the Greeks had Im, imbued into it. Character. Originally, it meant one who engraves. It, it, it was, uh, you know, they would take a pointed stick and they would write on clay tablets. And then they would set them out in the sun and it, it would bake. And so these clay tablets were then very hard and difficult to change. And so that's where this notion of character uh, came in. But even from the beginning of the use of this term, the, it, it moved away from the one who was doing the engraving. I don't think it should have done that because that's what... That's what the Lord's business is into that which is engraved. So like it's an image, a coin, a stamp, something along those lines. But that's what we find here. That's why it says the exact imprint. They're trying to, uh, the author of Hebrews is, is using the closest word that he can to say that Jesus is in fact God, divine. Exactly, precisely, the very character. So you end up with this uh, word that we understand. I mean, that's why it came to be viewed in our lives, too, because character does over time become fairly fixed, and we have to work really hard to change our character. You know, when the girls, our girls were growing up, uh, and now I get a chance, perhaps. I've kind of lost that ability a little bit. Barb has to look over at me sideways when somebody cuts off us off in traffic now because I'm I'm used to being alone, right? So I'm a little freer with what I say. Now I have a now I have a grandson in the back seat, so he has to he has to listen. So I'll go back to what I would do with the girls, and somebody would cut us off, and and what I would do is uh, you know and cut us off not close, but, you know, actually scare you like this guy's a a hazard, a danger. He needs to be off the road kind of a person. What I would do is I'd tell the girls, I'd say, you watch him. You watch him and in a few seconds he's going to cut somebody else off because it's in his character to do so. It is the way he is made. And sure enough, 10, 15 seconds, boom, cut somebody else off. Just trying to see how close he can get. And they would learn from that that people are consistent, generally consistent with their character. Now, this passage tells us more than simply character, obviously. I mean, the author uh, is pointing primarily to his essence, i.e. the essence of, of, of God. But nevertheless, it does tell us about his 
character. And through that, it implies something else to us. And that is this. If you know the character of Christ, you know the character of God. Remember the passage, John 14, 9, it says this. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, this may be obvious, but I want, I want to make... You know, I want to make the implicit explicit. Jesus was not talking about his height. Jesus was not talking about his hair color. He was not talking about his eyes. He was not talking about if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's talking about his character. If you have seen my person, you have in fact seen the person of God. This has deep theological significant, uh, significance for us because it not only tells us of the divinity of Christ, it tells us that He carried the character of God. Now, all who share a belief in, in God want to wish to know God. The Bible tells us there's only one way to know Him and that is through Jesus Christ. And even today, the character and I'm saying that as a Greek word, which is also our English word, the character of God is Jesus and is that revelation to us. A character development is a, it's a perennial challenge. It's, it's, a, it's a real problem. Dwight, uh, Dwight Pentecost, uh, Dallas Seminary professor, author of a lot of books, uh, some which you may know, Things to Come, or uh, the life of, of Christ. Well, anyway, he was changing offices. Uh, he was moving from one uh, place to another, and, and he put all his stuff out that he wanted to get rid of in the hallway at night with the promise that it would be gone in the morning. It would all be gone. There wouldn't be nothing there. And, of course, class was about to begin, and his pile of stuff was in the garbage. But it wasn't taken away. It was just there. And so there was a frenzy of activity as students descended upon all of his stuff to take it before it got thrown away. Now, now I'm not one to uh, I'm not one to follow uh, people. Uh, I, I'm not one to give in to, to, to peer pressure. I'm not one to uh, you know give in to those sorts of things. But it was Dwight Pentecost, so. You know, his papers and books. Some guy got an original manuscript of his life of Christ uh, that he had typed. And uh, anyway, all that stuff was gone in a New York second. You know what a New York second is? That's the length of time it takes for the traffic signal to turn green and the person behind you to honk. That's, that's a New York second. Now... So anyway, I sheepishly have to admit that after the frenzy was over, I thought, well, I'll go get some scraps. You know, they'll fit nicely in my library. So all there was was just kind of, uh, there was just a little stack of letters that were left, and they were like invitations to speak or something along those lines. And I just put them in a place and, you know, and fast forward to when I heard that he had died. And so out of nostalgia, I, I pulled some of those out. And that's exactly what it was. Most of it was just uh, stuff that was of no interest at all until I came to a letter 
that was written from him to Dr. Walvert. And my interest stirred at that point. And it wasn't long before I realized that it was a very forceful letter written in 1956 where Dwight Pentecost was telling John Walvert, we have to do something about the diminished character of the men who are applying to come to Dallas Seminary. Now I want to remind you that Erwin Lutzer was in that crowd. Chuck Swindoll was in that crowd. Hal Lindsey, Zane Hodges, Bruce Waltke. Men of stature. Men of... Now, he wasn't picking on any particular person. I'm just saying that those were the kind of men who were in the mid-50s. What would he say today? But what stunned me about that was at the academy, I had exactly the same thought. And so I began to wonder, is this just a matter of of, of maturing? Is this just when you come to a certain place in your life and understanding and, and maturity as part of the next generation that you look at the upcoming generation as having a character deficit? Is this just a cyclical thing? Or was there an actual progressive degeneration going on? You know, my thoughts went to Romans 1. 21 through 32, where it says, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God. Violent, proud boasters, inventors of evil things. Not enough evil, you see. You've got to invent some. Disobedient to parents. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. Now that is the tightest, most concise description, the thickest description that I have read about the downward spiral of a culture abandoned to sin. The Bible is clear that this is exactly what happens when society rejects God. And i got to say this, after I thought about this, I thought to myself, no, this isn't just simple maturity looking on the next generation. That's not what it is at all. What it is, is I have to say that I take no joy in saying that historically when a nation, or more accurately, when a culture fails, the roster of evil, look at it historically, is eerily similar. On August uh, the 28th, 1963, in his I Have a Dream speech on the National Mall, Dr. Martin Luther King said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Even though I was only nine years old at the time, I remember those words, powerful words, 
not only pithy, but deeply profound. Put another way, King was saying this, I have a dream about a future where immutable characteristics, that is, things you are born, born with that cannot be changed, or the change would be prohibitively difficult, such as bone structure, eye color, height, skin color, and so forth, would not warrant judgment, but people would be judged by their value-driven actions. I want you to remember something, because this is easy to forget. And that is, Martin Luther King was above all else, first a pastor and second a theologian. We went to the same school different times. But his untimely death came before the onslaught of social indoctrination that there are no immutable characteristics, only socially determined values and norms. King's comments cannot be understood out of his context. His context was that the Bible was the center of his theology. The Bible was the center of his faith. And the Bible was the center of his practice. We cannot interpret him in our light. You have to go to his time. And his time is where most of us in this room reside. King understood that aside from any judgment on earth, that character is engraved on us by Christ. That's, that's what he was talking about. He couldn't say it in that larger setting, but he would have said that in a sermon in his church, that it is Christ who engraves our character upon us. He writes His laws where? On our hearts. We can't write His laws on our hearts. He writes His laws on our hearts. You know, there's another engraving that I'm completely enamored by and also humbled by. Isaiah 49.16. It's our life verse. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of My hands. Your walls are continually before me. Yes, of course, he's talking about Jerusalem. But if you think the Jerusalem that he's talking about is built of stone and mortar and hay, you need to rethink that because Jerusalem is people who he has engraved on the palm of his hand. Engraved on the palm are people, you and me. Earlier I asked a question, is it possible to change our character? Yes, I do believe actually that that was the hope that C.S. Lewis had in his book, The Abolition of Man. And that is to become men and women with chests, meaning men and women with hearts, hearts filled with values, and that those values drive our actions. Contrary to popular belief, Unlike certain aspects of personality, there are certain aspects of personality that, that you just can't change. They just are what they are. 
And you, 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 just, you just deal with that. Uh, like, so for example, introversion and extroversion. Those aren't things that you can train in and out of yourself. You can act like one or the other, but you're not. <laughs> it's built in. It's just built in. But character is not that way. Character is something that you can deliberately attend to by deliberately attending to the values that you place in your heart. It's something that develops over time. It's dictated largely by how we deal with everyday situations. You know, there are uh, men and women of, of character that it has not revealed itself yet. And when I say that, I mean of godly character. Because sometimes there has to be a larger stage for it to present itself. But trust me, if it's presented on the larger stage and on the smaller stage, there have been failure after failure after failure, it will fail. To change, we must be willing to do certain things. I'll give you a few of them. I've mentioned this numerous times already. But first, we have to align our values with the values of Christ. See, see, this is what they learned at the academy. People come in with all kinds of values, but what they had to do in the military, particularly at the academy, is say, these are our core values. You will hold these values or you will leave. I believe that there are certain values that have to be within us that Christ puts in there. Our values align with Christ's in order to build character, we have to have that strong foundation. And value-driven actions are, in fact, the building blocks of that. The question we need to ask ourselves is, are our values biblical? We may hold to them dearly. We may fight for them. But have we ever asked the question, is it biblical? I mean, that's a, it's an interesting question. And we sometimes, I believe, if we're deeply thoughtful about it, we might be... Surprised. Second, we need to align our habits, habits, that's what we do habitually, and our behavior with those who are like him. Like Paul tell Timothy to be a what? An example. We are in fact to be examples with Christ living within us. So what does that mean? And this may hit some of us hard. The people we choose to hang with makes a difference in our character and our moral life. Even the Apostle Paul recognized that. I should say he recognized it first so that even I could recognize it. Be not deceived. Bad company. Bad. We need to choose. It corrupts good morals. We need to choose intentionally who our friends are and who we take examples from. We need to, uh, if we want to change character-wise, we need to identify people who we see Christ-likeness in. We need to connect ourselves with them and we need to follow those traits. Finally, we need to align our actions with His. Aristotle wrote, Men become builders by building houses, harpists by playing the harp. Similarly, we grow by the practice of just action, self-controlled by exercising our self-control 
and courageous by performing acts of courage. There's a verbal aspect to this. There's a doing piece of this because people of high character are doers. Their walk matches their talk. People are, in fact, consistent with their character. I'm reminded of Jonah. Jonah's great getaway, you know, running from God. We're, we're not told why until later, but we know ultimately that the reason that he ran was because he knew that God was going to save those people. And he didn't want them to. Now, did God come to Jonah and say, hey, Jonah, I'm going to go save those people? I don't think so. I think Jonah understood that that was, in fact, the character of God. You see, understanding wasn't Jonah's problem. Aligning God's values and habits and actions, that was, that was his problem. Sometimes things come to us that are surprising, um, unpleasant. At times, downright traumatic. Whatever pain you face today, whatever fears you wrestle with, at night, we, we turn to the Bible for consolation. We turn to friends for relief. But sometimes in our lives, there comes a time where we don't find the answer in Scripture. We don't see it. Sometimes our friends grow silent, compassionate perhaps, Present perhaps, but they don't have what we need. And we are in fact left alone. Silence comes to us as it did to Job. And it is then, it is at that precise place, and if you've been there you know, you know this. It is at that precise place that it is the character of God it is the person of God that gives solace and peace to us as an individual for his character is what will not allow him to leave or forsake us it was Paul's knowledge of God's character that allowed him to say and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love Neither death nor life, nor angels nor demon. Neither our fears for today or our worries for tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is consistent with His character. And He loves you. And He will never, ever abandon you or leave you. Father, we are so grateful that we can learn something of how to build our character based firmly on the foundation of Your character as revealed to us 
in Jesus Christ. So Lord, as we do what we can, hand in hand with Your grace, to allow You to inscribe on us the words from Peter, Galatians, Matthew, so many other places. May we rest assured in the knowledge that You are God. Your character never changes. We thank You. We praise You through Christ our Lord. Amen.